Why do we trust these little pieces of paper? The banknote is really this place where trust has been visually perfected because the utility of a banknote, its only purpose is to be trusted, nothing else. If you cannot trust a banknote, if you cannot trust physical money, then the financial system fails. This is the Bitcoin Muse, and I'm Clay Enos. Today I'm joined by banknote designer and author of Art and Money, Tom Badley. His rare skill sets and unique perspectives on history, symbolism, and meaning, and art's role in, around, and on money are the currency of our conversation. He brings deeply thoughtful reasoning to his own work and weaves a path back to the Baroque for all of us to better understand and ground ourselves for the future. While we have our differing opinions on NFTs and other dino blockchains, we find common ground on creative freedom, trust, scarcity, and Bitcoin as the true avant-garde. Many have seen Tom's work, Bukele Bucks, on the cover of Bitcoin Magazine's Orange Party issue, but scrolling around his website and social feeds gave me insights into a man of confidence, depth, and rarefied knowledge. While the money printers go burr, this particular money printer is brilliant. Be sure to follow Tom and to share, rate, and subscribe to this podcast. I appreciate any support you can show me. One of the best ways to do that is to use a podcasting 2.0 app like Fountain or Breeze. 10% of all streams and boosts split to help OpenSats do their thing for Bitcoin and other free and open source projects. Thank you. Tom Badley, welcome to the Bitcoin Muse. Thanks for having me. I've watched a few of your podcast episodes prior, and sometimes I feel like you don't get to go in as deep as you might want to on some of the more esoteric or philosophical ideas. I hope today we can do that just because I'm not as interested in NFTs so much as I am the deeper artistic and creative challenges that, say, banknotes and creating art present you. Because you're a banknote artist, but you're, an, you're a fine artist as well. How do you describe yourself? Yeah, good question. Depends who I'm talking to. One day I might wear the hat of an artist. The next day is a designer. Then it's a crypto artist. Then it's a banknote designer. The basic premise that I have that a lot of artists don't have is that I believe anything I make should perform in the real world. And that is a very designer way of thinking. You know, most designers don't hold themselves, uh, sorry, most artists don't hold themselves to account like that. Art is something that's made speculatively most of the time, and it doesn't need to perform, it just is. It's not a kind of tool in the world. I have this sort of designer approach to justifying everything I do in art. I should really make more artists' art, you know, art that looks like art and isn't justified in the same way as design. Then I can really call myself an artist, but I definitely am artistic. <laughs> and that's as far as I can say. Sometimes I wonder, as a fellow artist, if we don't sometimes hide in that moniker, mm -hmm. that it allows us to not define ourselves, that this, this whole free space that many people are afraid because they're not creative to go into mm -hmm. or to use. Mm. Yeah, the artist is, uh, an artist is like a catch-all. It's a kind of, I call it a get-out-of-jail-free card. You know that little card that you pull in uh, Monopoly? It's not a crime, it's art. Or it's not trash, it's art. It has this reputation of being, the artist is excused for making uh, rubbish a lot of times. That brings up a very interesting idea that we share a kind of lament that modern art has suffers from meaning and even aesthetic rigor. Right. And I've seen you eloquently explore that. Definitely. You know, that's where it comes from, wanting to distance myself from art. I'm very careful to use the artists, the term artist to describe myself, because it, all sorts of, of derogatory things come up. But at the same time, you know, the artist is, is like this prankster and this king of culture. You know, art is always considered at, at the very top. Oh, it's art, you know, so it doesn't, doesn't have to bow to the same, the same utility as anything else. People do look up to that in a way, but it's fraught, as you say, with, with all sorts of politics and, and a lament for where we are in, um, in human history. <laughs> and also, 
I think that art has served two major, it's sort of transformed from being ornamental and beautiful and, and almost divinely inspired to a way of protesting and leading a revolution. And I think Bitcoin and the artists that are being inspired by Bitcoin are weaving both of those. They're the tip of the spear for a Bitcoin revolution, but they're deeply concerned with aesthetics and meaningful art. Mm. And you seem to be right, really, in a crossroads of that or in the crossfire of that. <laughs> Do you see that melding of the two? Yeah, that's something that I talk about in my book because, and this is something that I've observed about crypto art, which is very weird and specific. In the midst of uh, postmodernity, you've got crypto art, which seems to be very like respectful towards meaning and symbolism. And that comes from, I believe, the fact that Bitcoin, like any cryptocurrency for that matter, is a new thing. It's a new currency. And we want to apply value to that new thing. And the act of wanting to apply value to something, it pushes us to find relevant and powerful and resonant symbols. That goes contrary to how art has gone in the last hundred years, which is to downplay symbolism, which is to actively disrespect symbolism and meaning. Isn't it weird when it comes down to money, when it comes down to what we want to find valuable in the world, there is an impulse to look for meaning and resonance. Isn't that weird? What Bitcoin and cryptocurrency do in the art space, and no one said this. I seem to be the only guy who's saying this. It pushes people to find meaning and to make art with meaning. That's a very, very notable development in the history of art because it hasn't gone that way for the last few decades. It is a new development and it's being motivated by new forms of money. Very interesting to me. And I'm still formulating my ideas. There, but And it's a difficult thing to do given that it's a hugely dynamic space. Now, I'm a avowed Bitcoin maximalist. I see all the other chains as temporary blips on a larger landscape. I appreciate that you would be exploring and expressing yourself artistically on those things. I feel like there's a huge amount of naivete being co-opted and taken advantage of by these other chains you know, to, to just sort of fill their block space with 8-bit uh, nonsense. <laughs> Pixel art. We can debate that. You're not making that. And we should say that you've made some pretty interesting and even high-profile Bitcoin art, the Bukele dollar for Bitcoin magazine and things like that. Mm. I'm sort of at a loss and in, in a difficult way to frame this. You're, you seem to be chain agnostic, and yet your words and your understanding seem like they're very firmly planted in the Bitcoin space. <laughs> Are you just not taking sides? Are you being a diplomat? No, I think that most crypto tokens are nothing more than marketing attempts to try and steal money from people. But the handful that are legitimate, they have their own story and their own utility. Bitcoin has something very specific behind it, very specific lore of very specific uh, utility. Ethereum is like the two are chalk and cheese, you know, you can't, you just can't compare them, but they are, they have their own resonant meaning. And I like to play with that. This comes back to like being, you know, having that designer mindset. If I'm working in Ethereum space, that I'm going to make something that is for Ethereum. If, if I'm working for working in the Bitcoin space, then I'm going to want to respect what Bitcoin is. There's a couple of others I'm really interested in working with. I think I think Tezos has a future for art. I think Ripple is super interesting as a currency, as a story as well, because there's some, there's some weird old money funding of Ripple. And the family behind Ripple actually go back to the Medici family. And I find that absolutely fascinating, you know? Yeah. I'm, I Here is this new form of money. And yet uh, this sort of ancient bloodline 
is somehow involved. And I want to I want to work with that. I want to express that in some way. So there's work to be done in these uh, in these other coins. But Bitcoin is Bitcoin's number one in my world. I would caution anyone playing outside of the coins that I've mentioned. I would caution really heavily caution anyone playing uh, for too long in the other spaces. I appreciate that artistic curiosity and obviously some tech savviness attached. I just worry that all your efforts would be for naught on a long enough time scale, right? That, oh, yeah. That everything goes to zero. So you're sort of enjoying it. And I would hope that your, your prowess, your chops as an artist, don't legitimize these chains unduly, whereas you're looking at it as a, a kind of artistic playground. And then it legitimizes it for some kid to lose you know, his $1,000 life savings. <laughs> well, you know, you can't be in cryptocurrency without losing money. That's part of the, uh, that's part of the joys of cryptocurrency. You know, seriously, I think that uh, in my world, Bitcoin is number one, but where there is a place to express a story, to tell a story, I will go, you know, so I am agnostic a little bit. This is also why I'm, I make, physical art and where I think I have a really strong differentiator when it comes to making physical art, because I, for want of a better expression, I print money, um, which is a pretty insane differentiator. It's a pretty insane point of difference. You mentioned the Bukele bills. They were physical. They weren't NFTs. They were physical bills that people actually received. And so you've got something there that will outlive Bitcoin potentially will outlive any kind of ethereal cryptocurrency. So it's very, the physical side of making is very, very important to me. It's very important to respect the fact that I have this printmaking knowledge that not many people have. I'm working with materials not many people are working with. I'm producing print on a level that is really outside of the history of art. That sounds ridiculous, but, you know, it's kind of true to have all these different to have all these different print processes going on on the same substrate is um, unheard of, I think, in, in, in our history. I've been doing this now for a couple months as a podcast, and I've been poking around trying to find representations or, or the role money has played as a muse, and it is few and far between. Mm. There's religious you know, allegories of the Jesus tossing the the money changers out of the temple mm -hmm. and people might paint that, but you're actually turning your money art. So you're in a very unique space. So I would concur. Yeah. I'm the only guy who's really making the, not only the aesthetics, but the materials of money, the medium. There's a, a lot of artists who use banknotes as a material. You have people like Mark Wagner and, and others who, cut dollar bills up and make collages with them. There are lots of artists who might draw on bills. There was Andy Warhol who screen printed dollar bills, but I'm the only guy who's really using the same techniques as money printing as art. And we should say that you have been hired by nation states to make official government currency, fiat currency. Yeah, so to an extent, you can't really do this unless you've got proprietary knowledge. That's why I think it's kind of dangerous <laughs> because, you know, what I'm doing is sort of pulling apart the banknote and displaying it for all to see. So there's this line that I'm conscious to tread, you know, uh, you know, how many state secrets am I divulging? How many sort of, how much proprietary knowledge am I putting out there? At the end of the day, yeah, it's, um, it is kind of unique. That's why I had to write a book because being an artist who uses money as the medium gives me unique insights into money and art. So that's, that's inspired a book. I love it. And I noticed in the book, you have a term called the aesthetics of trust. Right. And I wondered if you could just elaborate on that a little bit. I, I really, I think I know where you're going to go, but I'd love to hear it from you. Okay. Well, in that chapter, I break down the banknote and I say, you know, why, why do we trust these little pieces of paper? And it turns out that the banknote is really this place where trust has been visually perfected because the utility of a banknote, its only purpose is to be trusted. Nothing else. If you cannot trust a banknote, if you cannot trust physical money, then the financial system fails. You have something where artistry has been pushed in the direction of 
this needs to be trusted somehow. And so the aesthetic development of paper money has been pushed by that, has been motivated by that. And that's created a really specific aesthetic language, aesthetic environment. In that chapter, I pull out all the elements of that and and break it down so everyone can... So it's all laid out, basically. It is very specific. It's 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 very specific. It's uh, It's apart from any other kind of graphic design. Most graphic design exists on one plane, one visual plane. The aesthetics of banknotes are layered, not just in terms of like physical layers, but there are also uh, a kind of conceptual layering that, that is almost fractal in nature with banknotes. You've got the same motifs repeated in uh, various uh, magnifications, you know? And that brings it back to the Baroque. The Baroque is a place where you've got this aesthetic language which is designed to persuade. And so there's all these different details that repeat in different levels of uh, magnification. I mean, I got pretty deep there, but... No, I like it. You know, that's that's the kind of idea. I like it. And I can pull some of those things apart, if you don't mind, where as a Bitcoiner, we see these physical notes and we see modern fiat is backed by literally nothing. The nation states are duping us into believing. Yeah. And I acknowledge that in the book. I say, look, you know, this, the banknote for, for Bitcoin people or, or crypto people is like this, the portrait is almost the slave master, you know, on banknotes. And I acknowledge that, that there is something absurd about using banknote aesthetics in crypto art, but there's also something irresistible about it. So, you know, that's why I'm here. Those contradictions are fodder for an artist in any space, right? Mm. Those conflicts. Then the Baroque, which we would celebrate for its ultimate expression of painterliness or sculptures. I mean, the, the world was alight with energy under the Baroque, and certainly the art history or the art that survives is undeniably beautiful almost to everyone who sees it. There was, of course, a message of belief, right? And much of the material is sitting in the Vatican it had a connection to a belief system mm -hmm. that now being co-opted by nation states mm -hmm. uh, on dollar bills and, and on on their fiat currency. In God we trust. Yeah, in God we trust. Mm -hmm. uh, I had someone the other day ask me, we were having a vibrant discussion about the fallacies of fiat. And he says, well, you know what it's backed by? The full faith and credit of the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. And he said it straight-faced. Mm. <laughs> I thought, maybe he's just being persuaded by the images on the bills themselves. Right. Well, that's the power of money. We can't imagine a world without money. And so it is a very persuasive thing. The thing that I take from it is that, you know, how do I reconcile this sort of using the aesthetics of something that so many people resent, so many people begrudgingly accept, perhaps, whether it's banknotes or the Baroque, you have a ideology, a dogma, a religion, a system of control. Regardless, hmm. it brings out the best in human artistry. Because, you know, like the Baroque, not everyone appreciates Christianity or, you know, likes the idea of God, yet it's undeniable. Humans built this. If nothing else, these cathedrals and monuments are, they are monuments to human brilliance. And that's what I find in the banknote because I've sat next to people who engrave those portraits. I've, you know, I've uh, worked with people who perfect those machines that print the bills. The whole process is amazing to me. The whole process is like a Baroque cathedral. So there is this sort of, the nature of debt is parasitic, yet both are mirrors of our brilliance, you know? Well, you get into that, I think, in your book. You mentioned that on the eve of fractional reserve banking and all that Bitcoiners might lament today and be frustrated by today and see through today <laughs> was also a time when religion was fading. So as, as religion fades fractional reserve banking co-ops that space left in the void. Mm -hmm. And now here we are again, centuries of fractional reserve banking, faith, or, or let's say faith, takes another step back. Mm. 
and the state fills the void. So we've got a sort of double whammy of fractional reserve banking and the state mm. filling voids in in our psyche. Mm-hmm. And then along comes Bitcoin. Along comes this fresh take on the best money mm. that has no ability to capture symbols. Mm. It doesn't have, there's no physicality to it. Mm. Is that going to be a, the secret way back? <laughs> I don't know. Or just to erase that space and, and to refill it with something more meaningful. Mm. Is that question making any sense? The, the idea being that we've, we've been unmoored for centuries now. And money and the state have filled that space. Fractional reserve banking and the state have filled that emptiness. Mm. And maybe with Bitcoin, we can uh, take back ground and bring meaning back into our lives. So the way... Now, it's not an artistic question, but it could be... No, it's very interesting. I In the book, I talk about how the historical appearance of Bitcoin, it represents a need for the human being to decentralize. The key idea that I have in the back of my head writing this book and something I'll go in much more detail in the sequel is the idea that we are evolving. We're always evolving, but this process of human evolution is is really accelerating. With that accelerated evolution comes a desire not to believe, not to trust, but to know. It's kind of like the next level. Faith in the nation, faith in the state, faith in banks, faith, blind faith. We begin to see that as not good enough. We want to know, the human race wants to know. There is this this building desire to want to know all things, to intuit things. And Bitcoin, kind of decentralized shift in the monetary system, it's the precursor of something much bigger, which is uh, decentralized governance. The way this goes is that you start off thousands of years ago with a church. The cool thing about religion, organized religion, is it gives people very clear rules on what to do with their lives and how to live. And at the time, we needed that. And that kind of created a society. As that grew, you had the king or the queen, the monarchy, became like a stand-in for God. We call that the divine right to rule. As human beings progress and they want more space to explore themselves, that idea of the divine right to rule comes into question. And what takes over after monarchy is the state, which is what we've had, because the state feeds and clothes people in a way that makes them, that ensures a level of comfort that wasn't existing before. After the state comes the role of business. And this is what we have right now. We're in this space where... Actually, governments are pretty irrelevant in people's lives, and it's actually pan-national organizations like the IMF, the WHO, the Bank of International Settlements. These are the guys that are actually dictating policy. So we can say that governments have stepped aside, and now we are run by business. It's business that is playing the role in our lives. Now, because the human being wants to expand and explore and know that progression is unstoppable. It cannot be stopped by any totalitarian regime. It cannot. It just cannot. Because in an effort to keep up with decentralization, big business begins to cannibalize itself because it has to perform on on a more kind of granular level. What eventually happens (laughs) is that both the big business gets broken down into smaller and smaller concerns. And also family life becomes more corporate. And so you have this merging at some point, and I I know this sounds very scary, but this is what will happen possibly in the next decade, couple of decades, but in the next sort of hundred years, where big business decentralizes into small business and we have a return to the family state. Before organized uh, religion, you know, we had city-states. We had locales that were laws unto themselves. And we are going to gradually return to that. 
and eventually we get let loose into the wild. We return to the lap of nature where the only organizational structure is the family. I'm talking in like, you know, this is a four or 500 year process. Do you think it'll really be that long? I mean, given the accelerated pace of technological innovation. Yes, yes, because, you know, there are a few bumps in the road and things have to kind of, the human race has to like calm down a little bit. <laughs> where we are now, this is all my personal belief, but where we are now is just on the cusp of the first real bout of chaos, which breaks down the, it's like big businesses last gasp. It's the last gasp of the IMF. It's the last gasp of the World Health Organization. It's the last gasp of the nation as a concept. But that last gasp could last three decades, four decades, you know? So it's a, this is a long process. This is a long game. Bitcoin, to go back to your question, is just the way history works is that things come along and they just permeate themselves throughout culture. They offer like a little thought experiment. And that's what Bitcoin is. It's like this little spark in culture that's designed to spark and inspire conversations like this. People are having similar conversations all around the world. What could governance look like? What could the state look like? When everything is decentralized and broken down to its natural state, what does that look like? Yeah, and it was really kind of beautiful to look on those timescales because I think the average Bitcoiner and I would agree with you that we are in a, that the nation state and all the associated trappings of IMFs and BISs, their extinction burst is upon us. They're doing their damnedest and overreaching. Everyone wants stuff to happen now, like in the next 10 years, in the next one year, in the next month. But that's just not how history works, you know. Things are slow moving, slow moving. And to go from a society of total centralization, which is what we have now, we have a little scrap of empowerment when it comes to Bitcoin. We have a little thing to hold on to, which is decentralized. But for the most part, we are in a thoroughly centralized world. To move that from there to a completely decentralized world, it involves such a core change in every single man, woman, and child. Because to become decentralized requires an impeccable level of self-responsibility and self-reliance that we just don't know what that feels like. It's like a uh, aircraft carrier that's sort of this slow aircraft carrier that's like has to make a 180 degree turn. It's a very slow thing. And the events to transpire in the world are all there to, to trigger more self-reliance. It can be scary at times. It can be frightening. It can be inspiring and everything in between. I want to assure everybody, <laughs> if there's something I could like put in everybody's head, that it does resolve itself eventually. It just has to get pretty messy. Yeah, messy indeed. But also, I like that in that mess, the artist then is the tip of the spear or is helping acclimate the masses. Mm. Perhaps. I love that idea. <laughs> Certainly as artists, we, we would rise to the occasion. I hope so. But it requires a different kind of art right? too, right? It's, it requires an art that harkens back to the Baroque where it isn't just about stoking a revolution or challenging the salons like the Impressionists. We're going further back to one that empowers us spiritually, that refills the void that the state or a lack of state, or a lack of fiat currency, which wouldn't be all that bad, needs filling. And we're going to fill it with aesthetic enlightenment and beauty. It's a nice idea. Putting you on the spot a little bit. Okay. If we've posited this kind of beautiful renaissance or, or something new where the city-state reemerges and the family takes precedence again, and we have a digital future of digital money exists, Obviously, I'd argue Bitcoin. All the while, your particular aesthetic and your, you're steeped in the symbols and techniques of the nation state's tool for slavery, which was fiat money. <laughs> <laughs> How are you living with that burden? 
Well, it comes back to what I said before that broken down, when the banknote is broken down and it's taken out of its of its banknote context, then it's for me it is it communicates trust. Just like the Baroque, you have something behind it which is very specific, a Christian version of God. You might not buy into that, but you can buy into the idea that the Baroque basilica is is beautiful. And it's kind of the same with banknotes. Banknotes have become an art form for me, a medium. I suppose there is something, I'd, I don't want to say practical, but there is something that is utilitarian about it because cryptocurrency, it's failing, is that we call it trustless. Yet the human works on trust. The way we uh, approach each other in the world, brands, however we interact with the world, we have to trust something in order to use it. We're not machines that just require uh, zero or one input. We need to constantly be pinging our environment to see what we can trust and what we can't. And so because the banknote is a place that has perfected the aesthetics of trust, there is a role for banknote design in a Bitcoin or cryptocurrency space. It is trustless, of course, but Bitcoin must be trusted by us for us to be able to use it. So the way I approach working with Bitcoin and using banknote aesthetics is that I'm kind of, this is my way of honoring cryptocurrency, of honoring Bitcoin by taking something which is the most perfected visuals of trust and applying it in the cryptocurrency space. Because then you have something that can perform in the real world. It can delight and it can be something seductive. Bitcoin, when it's reduced to its to its basic components, it's just code, it's just zeros and ones. No one can get behind that, no computer can, uh, sorry, no human can, but computers can. Humans need aesthetics, we need something beautiful, we need something impressive to be seduced by, to, to find, uh, you know, in a way that reflects our, our own, the things that we aspire to. Obviously, as a visual artist, I like the idea that there would be a component of visual art to inspire trust mm. in something that is otherwise intangible. Well, this is why I have this mantra where I say, you know, crypto was waiting a decade for the crypto artist. And before crypto art really came into its own, Bitcoin had very little visual language, very little visual lexicon. And it's no coincidence that Bitcoin crosses the threshold into mainstream consciousness at the very same time that crypto art comes to prominence. There isn't, uh, that's not a coincidence. That's not an accident. That is because we need something visual to hang on, on bare code. You know, you, we, we can't just trust zeros and ones. We don't work like that. We need something beautiful. And that's, that's the role of crypto art. It's a nice idea that the visual art is playing a role in this trustless world and maybe giving people something to reground, uh, to find trust. If you don't trust, verify. After verification, I think you can move forward with trust. It's just with all of that has been done without visual support. Right, exactly, yeah. The artist comes along to give visual gravitas to something the one who can apply aesthetics, who can apply um, something friendly, recognizable, beautiful, delightful, seductive, all the things that we enjoy about art to this bare technology. This is something that coders don't really understand. Coders, they love code, they work with code, they don't work with aesthetics, and they just think, well, you know, here's my amazing code, you know, you should love it, you should, you know, respect my code. That's not how we work, we need branding. We need something that has a clear and consistent and trustworthy message. We use the cryptographic process to verify our transactions. That's a step beyond trusting an intermediary. But when it comes to actually trusting a form of money, we have to apply emotion to it. We have to emotionalize it. And to emotionalize it, we need art. Because art's utility is to provide emotional uplift. That is its own, if it has a utility, that's its own utility. So this added, this mystic ingredient called uh, emotion is what the artist brings. And perhaps we just need to mature into that. 
this space, this cryptographic money that we now have, has been the domain of cypherpunks and libertarians. And now it's bringing in the artists to allow us to mature in our understanding. Mm. That would be nice. The thing about the artist is that regardless of the artist's, the artist's skill level, regardless of the artist's qualification, the process of creating art involves a lot of intuition. And the thing about intuition is that it can reach further than linear learning. Something that artists do, that not many other people do, is that they're able to intuit the true nature of things in their art. You had written something that may play into that. You had written a, a tweet, the talent is constantly at odds with, quote, safety and security. Exceptional talent scares people who want a safe world, and the human race will only find its potential when adventurism and exceptionalism are embraced by all. No participation trophies. The future is for the exceptional. Because I think we've laid the groundwork. I really like this, this idea. I wrote that? You did. Wow. <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> Sometimes Twitter inspires us. <laughs> I like the idea that if we're coming into this new world that I think may come a little sooner than you, but is going to be disruptive to uh, many of our existing paradigms, that safety and security or a lack thereof or the perception that there's a lack of it will bring talent forth. And so the future is going to be awash in talent. Yeah, I would, I, would, uh, I would agree with that, yeah, for sure. A lot of great art has been made when there is a scarcity of resources, and scarcity of resources actually forces us to, to value human life. It forces us to value what we create. It forces us to find, uh, to take pride in our work, because we don't know when it all might end. We don't know if the delivery will, the delivery with food and water and, and bare necessities will make it on time, you know? So when we become comfortable, it works in the opposite direction. We, we tend to not respect the abundance that we have. And I think that is a lot of what's happened to culture and art in the last hundred years, is that when we become abundant, art almost tends to want to apologize for that abundance. It tends towards socialism. It tends towards apologizing for wealth. Art becomes like this plaything of the rich to demonstrate, oh, look at me, look how understated I can be. It's a race to understatement rather than, rather than something where that demonstrates the huge natural wealth that we all have, which is the genius within us, within us all. Yeah, that's, that's how, I would, how I would see it. I feel like you have such a command of the history of art and your place in it that I think your words could really inspire other artists to think more conscientiously about what our role is. It's nice to talk to somebody who's got such a command and obviously just spent two years writing a book on this bizarre intersection of money and art. Right. We, we often equate the two with just the charlatans of the gallery world, not the money itself being art. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, being an authority on these things, it doesn't mean that you're, it doesn't mean that I'm not, you know, controversial, I guess, because I'm, I'm kind of worried about the book because um, I could be stepping on a lot of people's toes because the history of art is, is unquestioned. The history of the last hundred years of art is sort of, it is what it is in a way. And it's sort of, and to go back and sort of reinterpret it, it's kind of a dangerous thing. So I'm definitely adding something new to art criticism because it's not really, I haven't seen anyone lay out postmodernism the way I have done in the book and especially not compare it to Baroque. It's just, that's just insane. <laughs> There's a lot of things in the book, which which is difficult, which challenges the accepted notions of money, of art, of, and of history as well. But I wouldn't be able to talk about them if I didn't feel like I knew about them and had something different to say, I suppose.
So, you know, I'm happy to be put in any situation where I have to defend what I'm saying. No, I, I really appreciate it. It's funny because the excerpts I've read uh, from your website, it feels very much like you're talking to Bitcoiners. Right. And it's not controversial. Okay. The fact that fractional reserve banking is a problem. Yeah. Bitcoiners are, they're on board. Now, it may be a little different for some kid trying to make an NFT on Tezos. Right. Or an art historian who knows more about the Baroque than we can imagine trying to get their head around the next decades, God knows what, ordinals or something. Mm. I wrote with the Bitcoin crowd in mind. For Bitcoin people, it's the least controversial. I'm talking about people in the bank industry, people in you know art history, all the <laughs> product design, all the other everybody else except Bitcoiners. That's those are the people I'm worried about. <laughs> but yeah, Bitcoin people, yeah, they'll I'm sure they'll they'll love it. <laughs> yeah, it does feel like it, and I like too that you've been making a showing with your art. You were in Miami for Bitcoin 2023, yeah, and uh, Bitcoin Magazine tapping your skills for. Uh, the Bukele bill. Mm -hmm. There is something avant-garde about being a Bitcoiner. Oh yeah, absolutely. A lot of things in our environment which are marketed as avant-garde actually aren't. They are just sandboxes that the mainstream or the establishment puts out to capture a certain portion of people and then have them sort of onboarded onto, onto their own scheme or deal or whatever they've got going on. Bitcoin, I believe, and there is there are many, many people have said that, oh, Bitcoin is a Trojan horse and it's designed to, to get people onto uh, central bank digital currencies. I personally don't believe that. I think Bitcoin is, is one of the few things in our world which is genuinely avant-garde. And I have my own crazy, dangerous theory as to who is behind Bitcoin. I'm not sure if I can say that on this podcast, <laughs> but it, it okay. but I'm working on my own my own feeling, my own intuition, my own intuition about Bitcoin. And 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 I do believe that it is one of the few things in our world which is genuinely avant-garde. And uh, if that's the case, then we all need to respect that because we have to tread lightly. We have to be very careful about what we say, what our digital footprint is, because you know we are coming to a place where it becomes increasingly dangerous to be avant-garde. Yeah, it's not to be taken lightly. Bitcoin is genuinely dangerous and it's great. <laughs> if we were to contrast that with the Baroque, there was nothing particularly dangerous about it. And that's where, getting back to that earlier idea, you seem to be at this lovely crossroads of this ethereal, enlightened, inspiring Baroque art form with this tip of the spear, Bitcoin revolution. Let's do this and let, let's get people moving forward through the tumult that awaits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have to go back to to craft and you know that's, that's the authentic place because that's something that we all the level of craft being displayed right now by humanity is is incredible. If you go on Instagram, there's just some amazing artists who are just uh, have no gallery representation. But um, you know, we're a brilliant species. Going back to the Baroque, that's the kind of same impulse they had. Where Baroque came from was something incredibly controversial, which was the church was basically failing. It was being criticised, and the Baroque emerged out of religious war. It came out of Protestants, the Reformation, Protestants versus Catholics. So it was a then a culture war. It was something incredibly contentious. But the way the Catholic Church responded was with this triumphant art. And I think that's the authentic way we need to go because anything other than triumphant craft is almost activism. And activism is a bit of a trap. You know, it sort of gets you in this very disharmonious space, uh, which is all about resistance. Whilst if you're just if you just fall back into what is essential, what is authentic about uh, about human potential, it is our ability to use our brain and ten fingers to create something amazing. 
Yeah, that's it. So activism then would be the artistic expression of that would be a kind of propaganda, which I've been wrestling with quite a bit right. in talking with folks. Mm-hmm. Are most Bitcoin artists propagandists? Propaganda today in art is sort of like, it's not true propaganda. It's like a parody of propaganda because there are a couple of artists out there who use that a, a kind of propaganda aesthetic say like Soviet propaganda posters or early 20th century American wartime posters, you know, stuff like that. We are aware of these tropes in design and we kind of ape them. We parody them because we've, we understand implicitly that we've moved on. Having said that though, there is mainstream culture is awash with propaganda, which takes an entirely different, an entirely different visual strategy. The way propaganda works today, true propaganda, is that it weaponizes things like tolerance and it weaponizes equality and stuff like that. That's where the true propaganda is emanating today. It doesn't have any of the of the nostalgia of, um, say, like Soviet propaganda or, you know, like early 20th century propaganda, which is all about shoring up the nation state to, to create a sense of, of nationalism and, and encourage people to fight for their country. Propaganda that we have today is much more, it sort of weaponizes this sort of egalitarianism. Propaganda in art is more, I see it as more like a parody, you know, like um, there are, for sure there are are people working in the space who are, who would consider themselves activists. I see them as parodies of activism. It's sort of true activism today is, it's sort of weaponized a lot of these egalitarian ideas that have grown in the last uh, 100 years. I'm talking between the lines there, but hopefully you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, again, Bitcoin audience, we, we understand. And also I would say that this modern propaganda is bereft of beauty. Right. And it's just just a club on your head. Yeah. <laughs> conform, whatever it is. That's entirely, it's on purpose. There's no accident there. It's meant to face away from any kind of tradition or culture or history. The goal is to sort of reduce everything down to a technological present. You know what I mean? Rather than having a, a rich history, the goal is to sort of enforce this technological present. And interesting that the last bastion of symbols and meaning have found themselves on these little worthless pieces of paper that we call money. Yeah. Yeah, that's something I talk about in the book, where these, you know, banknotes are this sort of outlier in culture and design, but maybe not such an outlier because we have cryptocurrency and a lot of the same impulses when it comes to designing money, uh, we find in Bitcoin, this respect of symbolism, this desire to find something resonant, to create gravitas around, uh, you know, the idea of, of value. Again, I I keep on coming back to this, but when it comes to money, when it comes to this thing that we need to be valued, it forces us to find resonant symbols. It sort of brings out the best in us in a way. Money has this great motivator when it comes to art and not just personal finance terms in terms of actually wanting to find something of meaning, visual meaning, something resonant. And that's what's been so amazing in working with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. It's forced me to think in ways of how can I present this in a way that, you know, everyone will trust and everyone will like, and how can I create something that is resonant, that is powerful, that communicates all this history and heritage that it doesn't have. Yeah. It's been an amazing journey in art and money. Yeah. Great. Well, look, I've really enjoyed our exploration of these ideas. I think we could sit and have more conversations to explore this intersection Mm. with you and it's allowed me to forgive your your mention of the other chains (laughs) sorry not sorry (laughs) no i know you're not it look there shouldn't be restrictions on artistic exploration Mm. and i think as we established early on the artist has their little they get that excuse right right to explore those chains is fine yeah the get out jail free card you know i always say uh hoddle and hedge. So hodl what you love, but also hedge against it. So that's my mantra in life and in crypto.
Very nice. And I, I look forward to uh, spending more time with you in person. I think that we could really poke around on the future. I think it'd be really fun to see how it unfolds. I think we're very much in alignment. Hopeful that the artists will ground us and give us strength as things fall apart. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. As Bitcoiners, we often use the cathedral metaphor because it teaches time preference and patience and also deep craftsmanship. I wondered where you see us and where you see yourself on that cathedral crew. And where in the timeline are we? I am offering murals, plans to build murals. At the same time, the cathedral building process is going to have its first big uh, road bump. So I, whilst I'm offering my murals, I'm also preparing for crisis. <laughs> nice, nice. So there's a roof. The roof, they're, they're, they're painting murals. But there's been a crisis of conscience, huh? You're right. Exactly, exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so long as the murals, the mural plans are out there in the form of books and enough books are laying around in the future, then I will have made my mark and perhaps someone will pick one of them up and make a mural from my plans that I've laid out. Yeah, nice. Are there plans for you to teach your skill sets to people in the future? I would love to teach, perhaps not how to teach uh, printing money, but absolutely, you know, I see these books as like a precursor to something like that because I think I have a perspective which is hard to find in the realm of art. And there aren't many crypto artists who are writing books as well and really kind of formulating their kind of philosophy of design or a philosophy of art that's uh, different. There certainly isn't someone who's been in the banknote industry doing that. Yeah, I think I have, I have something to offer there. And this book is, this is a spoiler alert, uh, it's going to be the first in a series. So I hope to, to release the next books that go a lot deeper into the themes that I'm talking about. Because I did find that there was much, much more to talk about in these themes. Terrific. Yeah, good. And that's kind of how I felt about this whole conversation, that there's so much more to keep exploring. And so yeah. let's, let's do that. That would be awesome. Yeah. Congratulations again on the book. And I look forward to more. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It's um, honestly like best, best podcast. I love doing these sort of deep dives. Some people it's like pulling teeth, but you're like, you just get me thinking about stuff deeply. So that's really cool. Thank you. Well, thank you. I wish I was slightly more articulate in my framing of questions, but I'm getting there. You're perfect. It's, it's great. It's great. <laughs> there you have it. I put links to TomBadley.net and to his book, Art and Money, there and on Amazon in the show notes for this episode. There's also a link to this show's webpage at thebitcoinmuse.com slash TomBadley. Remember to rate and share what I'm doing here, however you see fit. I think the Bitcoin Muse could be a nice introduction for your creative friends to be introduced to Bitcoin and inspire them beyond NGU technology. That's my plan, anyway. Feel free to tell me how I'm doing 10 episodes in. Thanks to my brother Brant for the music, to you for listening, and to Tom Badley for sharing his time, energy, and insight with the Bitcoin Muse. Onward.